Welcome to the show. I am your host, Todd Dallas-Lamb, and you're listening to On The Clock. On The Clock is a venture with the Strategos Podcast Network, where we feature an array of guests to dive into all things education. We hope you enjoy. Welcome back to On The Clock. I am your host, Todd Dallas-Lamb, and it has been 30 years to the year now since the very first charter school law went into effect in Minnesota, of all places. I honestly can tell you I don't know why it was Minnesota and how they found out about charter schools, but they do get all the credit they always have. Uh, And I thought it would be a good idea to talk to uh, an expert to get a sense of uh, the, the, the movement itself. Charter schools are a movement and uh, how well they've been doing and, and where we're going from here. John Hage is my guest today. He is one of the nation's leading social entrepreneurs committed to improving education. He founded Charter Schools USA in 1997. Uh, and as CAO, he, he has built one of the fastest growing companies in the United States with 10,000 team members educating 75,000 students in nearly 100 schools throughout the United States. Charter Schools USA is, uh, has over 25,000 students on waiting lists with 96% attending college or technical schools and a 95% parent satisfaction rate. That's an amazing bunch of numbers. John Hage, thank you for being on the clock. Really appreciate you being on. How are you today? Great, Todd. Thanks for having me. You are welcome. Well, I wanted to get your sense. Um, first of all, you know, one of the things that jumps out uh, at your uh, on your bio is uh, is you were uh, a Green Beret. How did you how did you become a Green Beret? That's the Army's. I hope this isn't offensive. The Army's version of the, the Navy SEALs is the Green Beret. Is that about right? I think that's fair. Um, I'm always uh, deferring to the SEALs, though. They do what we do on the the, the, in the water, which makes it even tougher. But uh, it was an honor to serve my country as a special forces leader and um, just was uh, an opportunity to do good and get, learn a little discipline after high school. And it was a great experience. I just uh, interviewed, uh, I think our most recent podcast we put out was with TJ Parks out in New Mexico. And I was stunned to see that he was educated at the Citadel. And he spoke pretty movingly about how that that military training prepared him for a a lifetime of education. I'm curious, how did a Green Beret find the charter school move? You know, um, I grew up in a pretty, you know, average family. My dad was a teacher, a public school teacher. My mom raised three boys. I'm the oldest of three. I did Cub Scouts and Boy Scouts. But, you know, school for me was not so uh, attractive. I actually struggled through school. I got kicked out of some schools. I was, uh, you know, nothing terrible. I just really, you know, I guess you'd call me at the time ADD. (laughs) Back then you were just a hyper kid who just couldn't focus. And when I ran track and I did things that were athletic, I found my body body and my mind more focused. And I recall after a year of trying college and that not working so well that I needed an opportunity to to grow up. And I actually sought it out. I went into an ROTC class. I uh, I met a Green Beret who saw that I was quite athletic and and uh, very sharp at what I was doing. And, and it fit. And all of a sudden, I was uh, watching these guys jump out of helicopters in the middle of the night doing operations. And I was just intrigued. And I thought, I've always, always been a patriotic guy. And I loved my country. And I felt, you know, this is a this is something I need and my country needs. And 
honestly, it's probably the, one of the best decisions I've ever made in my life. Um, besides marrying my wife and uh, a couple other good things like kids. And honestly, it was just, uh, it was what I needed. And once I gained that discipline and my focus just gave me a catapult, I've never looked back. And so I really, really, uh, you know, I tell kids today, you know, the military ought to be one of your options you consider. It's not always directly to college or maybe it is, but it's also how do you serve others and how do you also help yourself get, you know, better while you're doing that. Where did you find yourself? Where did that, where did that occupation take you for those times that you were serving? Yeah, so I did my time in Fort Benning. I did my time in Fort Bragg. I also did time in South Florida out of a special forces unit down here. And I did time in Colorado. And at the end, my dad actually moved out and mom to move to Colorado, went from uh, high school to a professorship in a uh, university out there. And I ended up after that coming out of the military, uh, going into uh, the reserves and the National Guard kind of side of the Special Forces to continue my service and uh, did my undergrad in about two years, just doubled down, came out of that, moved to Washington, uh, worked for a think tank for a while, the Heritage Foundation, doing a lot of research around foreign policy and defense, went to grad school at Georgetown at night and just was, you know, catching up for almost lost time and um, really never saw this track towards charter schools at all, even though I'm out of a whole education family. In fact, I married an educator. My parents are educators. Both my siblings are educators. I'm the only non-educator, but here I am. That's great. And then your work at Heritage, as I recall, there was some research that was being done in the mid to late 90s on the success that, that places like Minnesota uh, was were having with charter schools. How did that take you to Florida, back to Florida, where you, I believe you're from? Uh, and how did you get started in the movement 25 years ago? Yeah, so, you know, charters did start in Minnesota, as you said, Todd. Interestingly, it was kind of more of, a, you know, an experiment, right, which was it was made up. By, it was, really was a professor's idea that they took the legislature, tried it as a small pilot, and then it kind of expanded to a couple other states. New York was one of the early ones, Michigan. But Florida wasn't in that first three or four years of charter experimentation. Um after about four and a half years at the Heritage Foundation, finished my grad degree at Georgetown, um, I was from South Florida and I watched Jeb Bush run for governor the first time in 1994. Um, he did not win. I think a lot of his family and parents thought he'd win. And George W., who was running at exactly the same time in, in uh, Texas, as you might recall, actually won. And history was written from there on out. When Jeb... Uh, after his loss, uh, you know, the books write, write about this. He he really focused on, you know, the ideas behind his campaign, not the politics, which I really appreciated. He was really one of those, uh, I, I think he's more of a thinker than he is even a political guy. He really wants to do policies that make a difference. And I was attracted to that. And coming out of the think tank world and being involved in policy and research and all that and writing a lot of white papers, um, I was... I just followed his career and really was interested. So he uh, and I connected and I interviewed and he hired me as his research director for what is called the Foundation for Florida's Future, which is still around today, a nonprofit think tank here in Florida. And um, the very first meeting, he said, look, we're, we, I want to do charter schools in Florida. And I, I said, honestly, I said, what's a charter school? 
And he said, well, let's let's figure out what makes sense here in Florida and do the research. And and we did. And we worked on that together. And I ended up uh, authoring a white paper. Um, in fact, uh, it was 25 years ago right now that we authored that. And I put that out there. We went to the legislature in 96. Um, it didn't quite pass or 95. I'm sorry. Um, we didn't have quite two versions that were exactly the same between the House and the Senate. But in 1996, we had one version that everybody got around through negotiation. And what was interesting about it, Todd, is you had Republican legislature and a Democrat governor, um, nonpartisan coming around this 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 legislation and ultimately passed it into law. I have to tell you, John, I one of my first memories of even knowing or understanding the charter school movement, I worked for Gene Hickok in the George W. Bush administration. You just mentioned Jeb Bush in 2001. And, and we went up to Philadelphia where he uh, previously had been superintendent of, of education there under Tom Ridge. And we went to Philadelphia and I watched this uh, very professorial white man go into a, a real rough part of Philadelphia, where we went to a charter school that would not have been uh, there had not he helped create the Pennsylvania charter school law. And I really saw kind of the magic of the charter school movement when I saw you know, African-American women hugging this very white professor, uh, thanking him for all the work that he did to open up schools and charter schools in Philadelphia. And it really opened my eyes to the bipartisanship that's possible with regards to charter schools. Uh, he, they would not have been able to pass that law in Pennsylvania without urban democratic uh, legislators, and one of whom actually opened up that school. And I wonder, you know, in some states, it seems like charter schools are bipartisan and others, it's quite partisan. What, what, what is your understanding of why that is? And what, what is the state of the politics of charter schools these days? So I think, you know, the early days Todd, you could expect, and still today, some some partisanship in everything, right? There were, even during our negotiations when the legislature and I was involved in the discussions and the policy, I remember there were some concessions that Democrats wanted and some concessions Republicans wanted. But what I've learned over the years is that depending on the state, like you mentioned, you could actually have rural Republicans in a certain state being more opposed to certain aspects than urban Democrats or vice versa. And so the labels don't always fit. And what what I have found is that the labels that probably if you do want to at least say what what usually makes them more pro charter what makes them more maybe negative tend to be around a couple things one is that if you're in larger urban markets and you have like a history of low performance and that performance has been you know you've thrown money at it and you've done all these different things over decades and decades you know, it's really hard to defend that. I mean, even some of the most strident anti-school choice folks admit they struggle with how to make that better after they've already increased funding and they've and they've done all these different things they've argued for. So on the other hand, you know, if you're sitting in a small uh, rural-like area that doesn't have you know, a lot of people, right, and you introduce another choice into that marketplace, 
people tend to, regardless of party or politics, get a little bit nervous that are they going to hurt their existing, you know, traditional public school or even a private school that's been around for a long time or maybe a family member or close friends or principal or teachers or whatnot. So I think to a large extent, it really has to do somewhat with population. Uh, Areas with more population tend to have a larger opening for school choice or at least an opening mentally to it and politically too. If it becomes a smaller area, sometimes you're not, they're not philosophically opposed to it necessarily, but they tend to have a little more practical problems with what that might look like as it's implemented if they only have three or four schools in an entire school district and all of a sudden one of them comes in and 25% or 20% of those kids are now impacted. So I think that's a big factor. The other is that people really are reassessing. If you look at the data, right, there just isn't as many people opposed to school choice. It's a, it, 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 depending on how the question's asked, anywhere between 75 and 80%. So, you know, you just got a consistent positive view of school choice. Now, everybody has the bad apple syndrome where you have this one example of the school that was a charter where someone started it and bought a Mercedes instead of the kids getting books. And that ends up being what is a front page for the haters, so to speak, I call that. But, um, you know, but we have that in every school system and district and everywhere all the time. And so I think, you know, choice has just been better at kind of cleaning up its problems. I mean, they just don't last long. If you're a school that's not financially or academically really producing, right, year over year, not very few people will defend that anymore. I mean, I, we certainly don't. And, and and that is the thing. Accountability really works inside school choice. It's not that every school is always better. It's that when it's not doing better and it's not being different, parents don't make the choice for it. And usually the market itself starts to point it out as, hey, we don't really see that school lasting. So I think that is the part about over time, right, over 30 years, if you look at the number of charter schools today based on data again, whether it's on the NAEP data, high school graduation data, data math, science, reading, whatnot, they continue to have uh, increasing returns and those schools that don't tend to go away. And I think that's the difference than in the traditional system where those schools that are just not performing, yes, some of them get reformed, but a lot of them still, unfortunately, are still there not performing so well. So give me, I think most people understand the concept of charter schools. You know, a, a charter school uh, has to have a state that has a law that accepts it and has a framework for putting them together and has an authorizer for uh, uh, permitting a school to open up as a charter. And it's a public school, although, boy, oh, boy, do I still run into people who don't know that that's true. I can't believe after 20 years that that's a thing, but it's a thing. I don't, I'm not sure a lot of people understand the concept of charter management organizations like Charter Schools USA. So walk me through what that is and, and where are you located across the country? What's your, what's your scope? Right. So we're primarily a southeast, uh, I call it the SEC states. So uh, I have kids uh, that have attended SEC schools, and it's nice to uh, know that we're, we're serving in those same areas. So we're in, um, you know, the SEC from North Carolina down Georgia, South Carolina, crossing through Florida into Louisiana, and uh, affiliated in work uh, in other markets that are basically in that SEC area. And the reason we focused on that and haven't gone right to like New York, for example, is we really, uh, I think, find that the model works best 
where uh, two things happen. One is where the policies, the government is more open and more, um, you know, supportive of the idea of school choice and and uh, trying to equalize the playing field. And secondly, we find that families, especially you know, um, Hispanic families, uh, African-American families that just are hungry and desperate for something better are really open to this concept. Um, it's not, you know, the politics of it really don't take place at the parent level. I've never had a parent walk in ever and say, oh, we don't like that you're a company that helps run a nonprofit school or this or that. They don't, they want to know, do they have a great school? And is this, is it, are the teachers excited about being there? And are they learning? Are their children excited when they come home? Is the academic rigor? And, and so I really, you know, find that the Southeast for us has been great. I know there's a lot of successes in other markets, uh, Northeast, Midwest, even in the West Coast. But we've also found that the politics in these states tend to be more open to the ideas of school choice. As, as far as a management company, you know, when I started Charter School USA, I actually started as a small nonprofit called the Charter Foundation as a concept to basically just help folks get school started. I, I'd go out with a tin cup, do a little fundraiser. I uh, did it on the side of my small uh, consulting group. As Jeb went to go run for governor, I started a small, my own consulting group to do things around public policy, do ideas. Um, I like to take ideas that are in writing and then put them into action because I think we write all these policies, we pass all these laws, but a lot of people forget they actually have to be implemented and we have to make sure they work and we have to actually make a difference. And so I was just inspired as a sort of social entrepreneur with what I would see when the first charter school opened that I helped open in Liberty City. And I watched these mostly poor uh, low-income African-American kids come in with beautiful little uniforms and and their parents were excited and their caretakers and everybody was just around this and motivated. And I thought there's so much demand and there's not enough supply. Maybe I can help create some of that supply of high quality schools. And then what I found very quickly is when you start a school, just like starting anything, it's expensive requires a lot of investment up front, a lot of uh, uh, data, technology, solutions, finance, everything. And so uh, I just, I did what I think anybody would do at that point. I basically said, let's build something that is a business that has the aspects of any great company. If you built, um, you know, let's take uh, Apple, right? Apple was built literally out of the college mindset for kind of nerdy kids that basically liked the way the software worked. You know, at the time it was IBM. Remember that Todd? I mean, IBM dominated everything today. IBM doesn't even make computers. (laughs) Yeah. They don't even make computers. And, 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 and Apple dominates everything. Well, Apple could have never been the impact that it's had on the world, or much less on education, right? You know, Apple computers are in schools all over the country. School district buys, buys them. They're an amazing company. But they're a company, right? They're a for-profit company. They're traded. They have, but they have, they have results that are constantly out there for everybody. And if you're not doing good, uh, you're not being, you're not, you can't do well. So that's really what we are. We're a management company that does all of those services. You know, you you touched on the accountability uh, piece. So a charter school makes a deal with a school district. It says uh, we will, uh, you give us some flexibility and we will achieve uh, some agreed upon results uh, academically and we get to keep our charter. That's, that's the magic of it. It gets a little more complicated 
in my experience, I, I was asked to help keep a charter school alive. It was under the threat of being closed by the Washington, D.C. Charter School Board. And I went and met with parents and I, I asked them, you know, what about this school do you do you really treasure? Do you what, what makes you want to keep this school going? And and um, a, a number of parents, um, all moms said, I for the first time in my life, I feel like my one of my children is actually safe here during the day. And it occurred to me that if your if your son or daughter were um, violently ill with some horrible disease, you really wouldn't care that much about how well they were reading and writing. You, you'd want them to be safe. And the same, I think, unfortunately, goes for a lot of families in in tough uh, circumstances uh, in in communities where safety is is their number one concern. Academics is you know down the list, and and it really. To me, it lends itself towards the one of the fissures that I've always seen within the charter school movement is uh, accountability versus uh, this has got to be at least better than the alternative. And is that the main fissure still within the charter school community? Is Should we be closing bad charter schools or should we be having a broader argument that uh, letting a, a bad public, traditionally public school stay open for 50 years is much worse than letting a charter school operate for six or eight or 10 years. Yeah, I think it's probably that, that, and another one. Um, now it's about kind of same, some of the same arguments that come back around, Todd. So you had these early arguments that you're taking, you know, money and students away from traditional schools, right? That's the typical argument against is you're taking our money and our students. And the response, right, has always been, well, it's taxpayers' money, right? It's taxpayers' money. And these are families that pay taxes like everybody else. And their parents' kids, right? They're not really the state's children. They're the parents' children. And so you start with that premise. And I think what you find is there's still debates around following the money, following the child, for example, right? Um, I can tell you that in the 46 or seven states that have charter laws, some states still fund charters. In fact, Florida, as good as a state we're in, we don't fund charters at an equitable level to traditional schools. Traditional schools keep their local millage dollars, these dollars for, you know, property tax dollars. And those only go to traditional schools. And yet a charter opens up as a public school serving public children uh, that uh, with no tuition, um, certified teachers, all the same sort of, you know, requirements of cost, quite frankly, they have to compete for teachers, etc. But yet they don't get those kinds of same dollars. And so what you find is that parents are becoming more and more, I think, empowered, Todd, around the idea that they have to fight for their future if they want charters to be here long term. Now, a lot of people ask me all the time, well, do you, do you believe as a sort of founder in the movement that charters are here to stay? And my answer is nothing's here to stay. You know, people used to think Sears was here to stay and no one's going to Sears anymore or Kmart. Right. And it wasn't that, you know, Walmart or or or, uh, or, or Target sell different kind of clothes or something. They, they just basically learned how to be better and different. They, they created something that the customer liked. You know, people say to me all the time, well, what do you compare yourself to? And I say, well, look. Chick-fil-A, right, has seven times the business that a McDonald's next door to it has. There's a reason why that happens. It's because customers are expecting something that they can't get next door. If they, you know, there, there's choice in education today. They can choose to go to these different options, and parents are doing that. 
right? The pandemic has created an incredible uh, pressure against systems to do something better or parents will leave. And they, in fact, they are in many cases and charters have benefited from that. And I go back to all goes back to that the money and the child are connected and that at the end of the day, parents are going to have more and more choice going forward. Um, I was uh, studying some of this in, in other states, uh, in other countries even. Um, you go to areas like Sweden. Sweden allows the money to follow the kid regardless of where they go to school. Public, private, non-parochial, parochial, it doesn't matter. And what I think people don't realize is that pressure, the market's own pressure, parent pressure, political pressure, continues to move towards this idea that the parent is going to have choices. They're going to make those choices. And yes, politics are going to get sometimes in the way and sometimes it's going to get out of the way, but it's almost inevitable. And I do think they're here to, to last, at least from a policy idea. But what I can't guarantee is that your school is going to last if you don't do something better and different. And that's what I always try to challenge everybody with is create a better school, regardless if it's a traditional public school or a private school or a charter school, forget the labels. Create a school where kids are learning, that they love to learn, parents are engaged, teachers want to teach there. Create that environment and that culture that's going to drive excellence, and the labels will take care of themselves. You started this effort in 1997, and now we have, I think, over 3 million students in charter schools. Is that about where you might have guessed this was going? Or are you disappointed that it's not bigger? Are you excited that it's 3.3 million? And where do you see this thing going in the future? I actually had no idea to get this big, right? I mean, I will be honest, even our own organization serving close to 75, almost 80,000 kids this year and growing 5,000 kids a year, I would have never predicted. Um, because, you know, you just don't, really know the power of parent power, the parent power until you're around it. You've seen that. I've seen it. You give a parent some hope that their child, especially one that's stuck in a failing system, has an opportunity out of that. I wouldn't want to get between that and their choice. Um, I think it grows. Um, this year through the last year through the pandemic, it outstripped the growth of every other type of movement in the country. Um, and at the same time, um, you know, traditional systems saw decline uh, almost across the board. Uh, here in South Florida, we had about a 10% decline in traditional public school uh, students uh, attending, and we saw about a 6 to 7% increase in charters. Uh, so we didn't get all of that. Some of that went to homeschools. Some of that went to private. Some went to these sort of pod, smaller, innovative schools, which is a whole new area. And we also have a robust uh, school scholarship program here where children that qualify can actually go to a private school with the, with the scholarship. So I do believe it's here to stay. I have to tell you, whether your charter school is here to stay or that's all about performance as it should be. But the movement is only moving towards what I consider to be um, the long term benefit, which is parents have. Look, the one the non debatable point, no one will debate this. Right. You could be a traditional public school sort of defender your whole life. And I love public traditional schools. We we partner with them. We think we make them better most of the time because those schools are actually changing things quicker, faster. Superintendents have told me a hundred times behind the 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 you know uh, tell me quietly, Todd. The they won't say it in public. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Yep. You helped us do something we couldn't have done because you put pressure and you brought political pressure and that helped us. Right. Is that everybody wants to find a way to engage parents more. 
engagement was the indicator that we saw during the pandemic if you were home in a virtual setting when we got increase in performance it was because the parents were more engaged walking by saying i see you're doing your math right now i understand what you're they actually went up in engagement because the parent had more visibility than they ever had when the child was at school and so we actually saw engagement levels go up and so people say well why did you guys go up and I say because engagement went up. That's the that's the only you know that's the only defensible reason that we saw that. Well, I, I tell you that the number that that jumps out, John, uh, is twenty five thousand families are on waiting lists for your schools, and I can only imagine what that number is for for charter schools around the country. Um, it, it, it it's it's promising for the movement, but a little bit heartbreaking for the families that are trying to get uh, at least some of that hope that you talk about. Yeah, I'm, I'm so disappointed to say that there's over a million students on waiting lists and charters around the country, Todd. And most of those are from minority families that are hungry and desperate for an educational choice and option that they don't have otherwise. And they're stuck in a failing school. And, you know, the money stays in public education hands. We serve nonprofit boards. These are focused on results for students. Uh, charters that don't perform go away. Those that do a great job should be replicated. Um, and um, I think the only answer to that is to continue to focus on what works for students. Every time we go to the adult discussion and we talk about teachers unions or funds inside of a school system, you're not focusing on what's good for kids. And at the end of the day, you have to think about what is working for students? And by the way, I'll never defend a charter school or any other school that's not working for students, and including my own. So if we have to have something done different, then we have to do something different. But so should everybody else, because we have an incredible opportunity, not just a challenge, Todd, but what we're seeing with the math scores going down across the country because of the pandemic, what we see because of the lack of engagement in many cases where families and the social emotional health of students right now, we have to kind of re engage. I'm incredibly excited about the opportunity. To me, a crisis has to be used to absolutely put us around what's best for kids and to stop the arguments. And I'll be the first to say, if a charter school isn't performing, let's change it. But when the public traditional schools also hold themselves to that same account, I think then we start to see everybody really lifting all boats. And it is happening. Um, I can tell you right now, you talk to a superintendent in Dade County, uh, Carvalho, one of the best in the country, and he will tell you, and he's gone public about it, that school choice has helped his entire school system. And he's done that for all of his traditional schools as well. And I think that's really the future. The future is stop making excuses, stop focusing on, you know, the politics of adults, start focusing on data, the, what is working for students, share concepts, share ideas, let everybody kind of get better because they're open. And you know what? Then we will see students across this country prosper. And this country's got the, you know, we have an amazing educational system. People put it down all the time. I certainly don't. I just say we can do better by putting in place some of the fundamentals that have worked in every other sector. Why won't they work in education? Well, we're different. That's just not true. At the end of the day, parents need to have the engagement of knowing what works and what doesn't and making choices that make a difference for their kids. When you have that connection, it's a powerful, powerful force for education. 
His name is John Hage. He's the CEO of Charter Schools USA. He served our country as a Green Beret and, uh, dare I say, still serving our, our country uh, in the form of CEO at, at Charter Schools USA. John, thank you so much for being on the clock. You're, you're now off the clock. If you want to learn more about the show, please visit www.strategosgroup.com. Please consider subscribing on your podcast streaming platform so you don't miss out on our next episode. And until next time, I'm Todd Dallas-Lamb, signing off.